gather before we get started with our teaching today. We're going to participate in our confession of faith. Uh, we do this every week as kind of an open declaration of the kind of faith we want to have. Uh, and I, I say it often that this isn't an exhaustive list. This is just kind of shared language for the kind of faith, the kind of community we want to have and be. And so gather, uh, this is the faith we are seeking. We are seeking an expansive faith. We believe our theological system should always be growing wider and including more. We are seeking a faith rooted in the person and the practice of Jesus. We believe Jesus is God and is worthy of our worship and our imitation. We are seeking a faith built on a foundation of theological minimalism. We believe in holding tight to the first things of faith and living open-handed with the rest. We are seeking a faith marked by curiosity. We believe we should always have more questions than we do answers. And we are seeking a faith filled with compassion. We believe our beliefs are never more important than the person right in front of us. And so gather as seekers on a journey towards a more expansive and curious and compassionate faith. Let's say a prayer together. Uh, God, we are seeking today. God, wherever we are, wherever we find ourselves today participating, we are seeking and God, we are trusting today that we will find you, that we will find you in ourselves, that we will find you in our families and our friends. God, we are, we are trusting today that we'll find you in the scripture. So God, help us to find you. God, we love you. We pray this all together in the name of Jesus. Amen. So uh, last week, we celebrated three years since the founding of our community. It was a great uh, celebration. And I, I share with you that we have uh, kind of a, a new focus, a new emphasis as a church. And uh, we spent a lot of times and uh, a lot of time in the last couple of years uh, talking and, and really putting an emphasis on uh, creating a safe space and pursuing healing. And we're not going to stop doing that. We're going to continue uh, doing that. But uh, we want to go a little further now. We, we feel like we've gone upward to God and experiencing God's love in order to create this safe and inclusive space. We feel like we've gone inward on this journey towards pursuing real healing. And now it's time uh, to step outward. It's kind of the third movement of our church from uh, upward to inward and now outward. Uh, so what I told you last week, what I want you to know is that we are becoming a community of peacemakers. Now, we want to participate in the work of peacemaking. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about what it means to become a community of peacemakers. So we're going to talk about things like decolonization and intertwining justice and mercy and evangelism as peacemakers. Uh, but first, today, to kind of set all of that up, I want to have a conversation about undoing the violence in our theology. And this may be a new topic for you, a new idea that we have some violence to undo in our theology, or maybe that our theology is, has been violent at all. May, maybe all of it is new to you, and that's totally okay. It's pretty new for me, too. Like in general, in my life, in my faith, in, in my study of all of this, I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about violence or that violence was really a problem at all. You know, I, I had, of course, read those passages from Jesus where Jesus says to love your enemies and uh, to turn the other cheek. I, I had, of course, uh, read those, but I thought that those were kind of a uh, do the best you can until you can't 
kind of a situation. And to be honest, the problem of violence just seemed kind of far away from me. It didn't feel connected to me. It didn't feel connected to my theology, my faith in any uh, real way. But then um, on January 6th uh, of last year, there were thousands of people who claimed the name of Jesus, who, who put up crosses next to nooses, and who used violence as a way to, to enact their version of justice. And, and when I saw that, it was like the light got switched on for me. And this thing that I had never really noticed before, never really thought that much about, all of a sudden, I saw it everywhere. And I could see the Christian nationalism. And I could see how our theology had gotten all mixed in with American exceptionalism. And as a result, God had been used to justify violence and war. God had been leveraged. God had been used, manipulated to justify violence and war. And when the light gets turned on like that, you just see it everywhere. And I started to remember things like uh, President Bush standing on the aircraft carrier with an American flag behind him and a big uh, mission accomplished sign quoting the, the prophet Isaiah as he touted American conquests and war. Just two months ago, President Biden, again quoting Isaiah, said that the American military had answered, had always answered the call from God with, here I am, Lord, send me. As if the American military was fulfilling the mission of God. And this is what happens when our theology gets intertwined with violence. God gets leveraged. God gets used. The name of God is used in vain to justify war and violence and death. And when the light gets turned on, you'll start to see uh, these images of violence get used by followers of Jesus everywhere, that like life is a battle and that you are a soldier and that we are at war that we have an enemy and that you should come to our fight club Bible study. It's violence intertwined with theology. And this today, it's a, it's a, um, it's a huge conversation. It was very nuanced. It's a big conversation. And um, you don't, a couple of things, you don't have to agree with me about all of it. I, I'd tell you that, but I, I just want you to know, really, you don't have to agree with me about all of it. And I'm trying to stay in my lane today. So I don't have a lot of, um, of form, deeply formed opinions about war, but I have some opinions about how God gets used to justify these things. So I'm going to try to stay in my lane today, but I'm hoping because this is such a huge conversation, it's very nuanced. I'm hoping if nothing else, I can just uh, flip the light on for you a little bit so that you can start pulling at it so that you can start exploring a little bit for yourself. But I think, I, I believe that we need to undo the violence in our theology because we are becoming a community of peacemakers. And you can't make peace by waging war. And so today we're going to talk about two big ideas, two big places in our theology that we need to do some undoing and some unlearning. And the first idea to unlearn is this idea that God condones violence. In particular, that God condones the violence in the Old Testament. I think we need to unlearn, undo this idea a little bit. And there, there is uh, no doubt that the Old Testament is violent. 
This is a very, very common question from people who are reading the Bible and struggling with it to say, what do, you, what do we do with all of this killing? There's just nonstop violence. Almost every book in the Old Testament has uh, some depiction of violence, right? God rains fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. There's uh, laws that get put in place in Leviticus that if you break the rules, you can be sentenced to death, public execution. In Exodus, uh, God, uh, God uh, blankets uh, uh, the world with these plagues and uh, the, there's the killing of firstborn ch- children, children. And, and speaking of children, the, the most famous Bible children's story is the one where uh, everything gets flooded. A massive flood kills almost everything. There's verses like Joshua 6, 21, then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, devoted with the edge of the sword. So does God condone all this terrible violence? Because it is terrible. This should read, when you read these things, they should read as terrible. So uh, when you read verses like Joshua 6.21, then God's people killed men, women, and children. You shouldn't just go like, I guess that's how it goes. You should read it as terrible. It should, it should read as bad. And they often get dismissed because we're like, I guess that's how it, how it always was, or I guess that seems fine, or I don't really understand it. They get dismissed or it just gets ignored. We'd rather just not think about it. But it's in there, and it's tough. So does God condone all this terrible violence? I, I I don't believe that God is condoning these acts of violence. I don't think God is ordering them. I don't think God is using them for some bigger purpose. I do not think God is pleased with this violence. I don't. And I don't have time to give you all of the reasons that I don't think God is condoning this violence, but I'll I'll give you one just uh, kind of big picture thing to think about. So in the Old Testament, um, there's this cycle that happens over and over again with God's people, the Israelites. That God's people, uh, they they want power. They start to pursue power. They want their uh, they want their nation to grow. They want they want some version of power, and then they decide that they're willing to use violence to get that power. So they start killing the people around them or enslaving the people around them. They're willing to use violence to get the power that they want. And then eventually, someone else uses that same violence against them. They get overthrown, and then they get exiled. And it happens over and over again. They get exiled. And then after they're exiled, they decide they want to be in power again. And in order to get that power, they use violence. And then that same kind of violence is used against them and they're put into exile. And then they decide they want power and they decide violence is the way to get it. And we see this cycle happen over and over again. And when you're reading it like that over and over and over again, and when you see the story like that, you start to realize that maybe the Bible isn't condoning the use of this violence. Maybe the Bible is critiquing it. Because if I told you any other story about someone who thought that something like violence would lead to their good over and over and over again, and then it just kept leading to their downfall, you wouldn't, tell, you wouldn't think that I was telling you to participate in that same action. You would hear me saying, this is a critique of this bad decision-making. I think the Bible and I think God is ultimately critiquing the use of this violence in order to gain power. He's not condoning it. 
right? And, and this is really the role that the Old Testament prophets play. So when you get all the way like to the book of Isaiah, like the one that the American presidents like to quote, the book of Isaiah is ultimately a critique of this cycle that's happening over and over and over again. And the prophet Isaiah says, he will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will take up sword against nation. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Isaiah says, this is the real light of the Lord. Let me critique the way this has gone. This is the real light of the Lord, uh, of the Lord. Your weapons will get turned into farming equipment and you won't even train for war anymore. As we undo the violence in our theology, the first thing to know is that God is not condoning the use of violence. The Old Testament is largely a critique of the use of violence. So I think that's the first idea that, that we need to undo, that we need to think through, that we need to walk through to kind of help us undo this violence. And I think this, the second one that may be even more important for us as followers of Jesus is this idea that the crucifixion is an act of redemptive violence. Because the, the, cruci- the crucifixion is, uh, is really violent, like re- really, really violent. Like everybody knows the story. Jesus was publicly executed, slowly. You might remember what he was wearing on his head or how he was attached to the cross. Uh, Maybe you've heard a preacher bang on the pulpit to illustrate the nailing of Jesus' hands and feet. You ever seen somebody do that? It's violent. It's really, really violent. And so the question is, is that violence redemptive? Or or maybe uh, an easier thing to wrap our head around is, uh, are we saved by violence or are we saved from violence? Is the cross redemptive violence? Are we saved by this violence or from this violence? It's easy to think that we're saved by violence in the cross because if the cross saves us and the cross is really violent, it seems if you just look at this one little thing, like, uh, yeah, it seems like maybe we're saved by violence. But I think it's just important to remember this one key point as we think about it, and I'll say this as many times as I need to, uh, for as long as I need to, to you. Uh, God didn't kill Jesus. God didn't kill Jesus. God didn't look at humanity and say, I really don't like them, and so what I'm going to do is send my son and kill him so I don't have to kill these humans I don't like very much. That is cosmic child abuse. It's not good theology. God didn't kill Jesus. Brian Zahn says this, the violence of the cross is not what God does. The violence of the cross is what God endures. The cross is not what God inflicts upon Christ in order to forgive. The cross is where God in Christ transforms the hideous violence of Good Friday into the healing peace of Easter Sunday. The silent witness of every crucifix bears testimony to this. When we see Christ dead upon the cross, we discover a God who would rather die than kill his enemies. If we can see the crucifixion of Jesus as Christ absorbing and enduring violence in order to forgive that violence, then the cross is ultimately the abolition of violence, not the justification for it. God would rather die than kill his enemies. The cross, the crucifixion of Jesus is the ultimate end 
to that cycle that begins with God's people in Genesis, that cycle that says, I want more power, so I'll use violence to get it, and ultimately that violence will probably be used against me and I'll be in exile, but I just want more power and I'll use whatever violence I need to get it. The cross ends that cycle and is the abolition of violence, not the justification for it. It's what Paul is saying in in his famous Christ hymn in Philippians chapter two, when Paul says, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Instead of pursuing power, Jesus makes himself nothing. Instead of employing violence, Jesus endures violence in order to forgive it. We are not saved by violence. We are saved from violence. Violence is never redemptive. The cross is the abolition of violence, not the justification for it, because violence never saves. We don't make peace by waging war. But when we frame the Old Testament, when we frame the crucifixion of Jesus as redemptive violence, it can really get us off course. All of a sudden, the Prince of Peace becomes the God of War. So today is is Halloween, so happy Halloween. Uh, uh, Maybe you grew up going to a church that was kind of anti-Halloween. I I never went to a church that was like uh, preaching sermons about being anti-Halloween, but we definitely didn't have Halloween parties. Like they threw some alternative to Halloween events like fall festivals or trunk or treats. So it was like right there on the line, like we're not really into Halloween. It's a little too uh, witchcrafty for us, but we're not going to tell you you shouldn't get candy. So come to the church for the trunk or treat fall festival, kind of that situation. It's a little a little anti-Halloween, but in, in my church has grown up so a, a little uh, anti-Halloween, but like really into sending 12, 13, 14-year-olds to something called hell houses. You ever heard of these hell houses? I wanted to get it right, so I looked up the internet definition of what a hell house is. It's kind of like, think haunted house, but hell house. This is what the internet says, the vast internet. Hell houses are haunted attractions primarily run by Protestant evangelical organizations. They depict acts which the organizers deem sinful and their consequences, including the torments of the damned in hell, and usually conclude with a depiction of heaven. Scenes portrayed may include... Uh, date rape, abortion, extramarital sex, raving, the use of alcohol and drugs, and suicide. Hell houses typically emphasize the belief that those who do not repent of their sins are condemned to hell. So instead of uh, evil Halloween, uh, we would get sent to uh, hell hell houses. Churches would send uh, children to a live reenactment of people burning in hell and committing suicide. Just terrible, terrible things. Absolutely no shame if you went to a hell house or you worked to put one on or or whatever. No, I understand how you would get there. But this is the natural consequence of believing that violence can be redemptive, that that there's a means to an end. and Violence is, is a justifiable means if you get the end that you want. It's the natural consequence of believing that we are saved by violence. That if violence, that violence, if used correctly, is good for us. But the way of Jesus is about abolishing violence. Violence is never redemptive. Violence never saves. And we should undo the violence in our theology and stop using, manipulating, leveraging God 
to justify our use of violence. So for you, what, what uh, before you walked in here today, you didn't walk in, before you were watching this today, uh, what were your beliefs about God and violence? What, what, uh, how, how did violence and your theology interact? Maybe you just tried to ignore the violence in the Bible. Maybe you've never thought about it. And uh, if I opened a total can of worms for you today, I'm sorry. But how, how are those things interacting for you? And uh, if you had to characterize it, do you, do you think you've been saved from violence and not saved by violence? Like, where, where do you think you are on that kind of spectrum? Do you think you're saved from violence or by violence? Uh, maybe uh, you could just think, I, I was trying to work through this. How, how would I know? Uh, maybe you could just think about uh, how you've applied uh, your general theology to yourself. So think about this. Do you use your theology to wage a war on yourself? Do you think you're in battle with your body? Do you think you're in battle with your desires? Do you think you're in a war with your feelings? Have you used violence on yourself? Has your theology told you to use violence against yourself? Maybe you've been convinced that violence, the language of violence, a theology of violence can be redemptive. And what would it look like for you to just flip the light on a little bit this week on all of this stuff? Just notice the violent language, the need for a common enemy. Maybe you could explore nonviolent theology a, a little bit more. Maybe you need to uh, get some resources. I'm happy to send you some more resources. Maybe just explore nonviolent language a little bit more on your own. What would it look like for you to just flip the light on? You say, I'm just going to try to notice a little I'm going to start exploring this myself. What would that look like for you? Because gather, we are peacemakers, but we can't make peace by waging war. So it's time. It is time to undo the violence in our theology. But, uh, but listen, as we finish here today, I, 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 I don't want to dismiss, I just want to make sure that I don't dismiss or bypass the difficulty of your circumstances. Because I know, I know that your life, your work, your family at times, your faith, uh, that all of this, this culture that we live in, that all of it um, can feel like a battle. I've heard that from you at various times. I feel like I'm, uh, I feel like I'm battling again, I'm struggling. I know it can feel like a war like a battle, like a struggle. And I know that it is really hard. Like I, I hear, I know it is, it is ridiculously hard, this life that we live. But Jesus, Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like this. When the day is done and the work is over and the struggle is complete, no one's gonna say to us, well done, good and faithful soldier. No. When the day is done and the work is over and the struggle is complete, what you'll hear is, well done, my good and faithful servant. Because in the kingdom of God, we don't soldier through the struggle. We serve. We are servants. We give up our power. We humbly endure. We take the very nature of a servant. That's what Paul says in Philippians 2. We aren't soldiers. 
We aren't in battle. There is no war. We don't worship the God of war. We serve the Prince of Peace, the God who would rather die than kill his enemies. And so gather, this is my prayer for you today. Embrace the nonviolent way of peace. There is no battle, no war to wage. So love your enemies, turn the other cheek, serve, don't soldier. For blessed are you, the peacemaker. You are a child of God. Amen. Uh, we're going to participate in a couple minutes of silence and reflection. There'll be some prompts to, that you can pray through if that's helpful for you. And then at the end of that time, uh, you'll hear our gospel proclamation, and then we'll be sent out with our benediction.